You know, there are times as Brother Rick and I teach and preach through the Word that our texts and our message coincide very well with one another. Today is one of those times. My text will be from Revelation chapter 22. So this is the last chapter of the last book in the Bible. And we see here an exclamation point placed here, inspired by the very God of truth, testifying to the significance and the seriousness and the authority of the Word of God. Revelation 22, and I begin reading at verse 18. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Notice here that there is a severe warning given to anyone who will either add to or subtract from the words of the book of this prophecy. Now, in its context here, this text is referring specifically to the book of Revelation, but yet there is a principle which extends to all of the written word of God. We talked about that this morning, and we'll look at a couple of scriptures that point that out to us today. But this particular book is in view. So the book of Revelation is the word of God. It is inspired. It is rightly included in what we call the canon of scripture. Now that word canon, that's not canon like ready, aim, fire. That is canon from, I believe it's from the Greek and it's either Greek or Latin. Don't quote me on that. And yeah, it's Latin and it means rule. It means that which is the rule, that which is the standard by which you measure something. So when we talk about the canon of Scripture, what we're talking about is those books which are authoritative are the rule by which we measure all things. So this book is rightly in the canon. Throughout, it has been clear that it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is the focus of this book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The very words of Jesus Christ are contained in it in many places. The message spoken through the angels to John are inspired words. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And then it mentions severe penalties 
for adding or subtracting. Now, you may remember from previous in the book, this is the only book in the Bible which also explicitly mentions that those who read it will be blessed in the reading of it. Now, again, there's a principle that applies to all the word of God. As we read the word of God, God works in the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit to instruct us, as Brother Rick brought out this morning. But this book, as well as having this great blessing for those who read it, has immense and horrific curses for those who would edit it, who would alter it in any way. Notice that it says, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. What are some of the plagues written? We saw some of those in chapter six. It's things like people being consumed by disease, starving to death. It is things like the curses of God coming down upon people so that they are crying out that the rocks and the mountains would crush them and hide them from the wrath of Jesus. If we don't get the fact from this text that God takes seriously his word, then we are not on the track God would have us to be. God's word is not to be trifled with. Every time that we open the word of God, we are to be going to it not to discover what we want, but to submit ourselves to what God has declared. And we are to go to it reverently, respectfully, joyfully, because we're blessed in it, but we take it seriously. Now, that doesn't mean we worship the leather cover of this and the pages that are in it, you know, and this, that, and the other, but we reverence the God who has communicated this to us and we respect him so much that we cherish what he has given to us. Think about it, just a mundane illustration. There are those who save letters from loved ones. You think of an era like World War II and letters being written home from the sweetheart on the battlefield. And those letters are cherished. Those letters are given an honored place in the home. Why? Because the person who gave those letters, who wrote those letters, is cherished. Because that person is respected. We honor and respect God's word because it's God's word. And... We do not take lightly those that would alter, that would edit the word of God. For God says he will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And it says, if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy. Again, the adding to and taking away refers to editing the book. It doesn't refer to seeking to understand it properly and then making a mistake in our interpretation because we'd all be in trouble. (laughs) But literally it says the one who adds to it or takes away 
from it. And I'm going to give some examples in just a moment of those who have done exactly that. Okay. Notice if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. What is this saying? This is saying that whoever sets out to deliberately subtract from the word of God, if they do not repent of that, they are damned and they will face the wrath of God. That's how serious this is. If somebody deliberately sets out with scissors to snip out portions of the word of God, they will be damned. There's no other way to read this. It says they will not partake in the heavenly city. They will not partake of the tree of life. And all the curses in the book will come upon them. They're going to face the wrath of God. So this makes this a very serious matter. I'm going to get into application of this in a moment, but as we approach it and we seek to interpret it rightly, this should give us pause that we very carefully and diligently seek to understand the true meaning of the text and not take it lightly. Thankfully, like I said, this only applies to those who with a high hand right into the word of God or subtract from it. So God is serious about his word. Now, what are some examples of those who have done this? Here is one exact example. Those that call themselves Jehovah's Witnesses but are not Jehovah's Witnesses because they do not represent Jehovah. In their book, The New World Translation of the Scriptures, they have gone through and they have tried to systematically remove and change any of the Scriptures which speak to the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was a high-handed and deliberate effort, and they will face the wrath of God for it. Because, and I say it's a high-handed effort, because you have one man who stands up after almost 2,000 years of Christendom since the words were first taught by Jesus. One man stands up and he says, I have it right. Everybody else out there in the Christian church and all the translations of the word of God that have stood the test of time and have had wicked men trying to wipe it off the face of the earth and God supernaturally preserves it. They are all wrong. I've got it figured out and I'm going to go and rip out everything that speaks about Jesus Christ and his divinity, anything that speaks about the Holy Spirit as being a a person in the Godhead. I am going to rip it out, alter it, change it through my translation committee. It's an abomination to God and they will face the wrath of God. Therefore, we need to give them the truth of the gospel of Christ. Our hearts should go out to them. And when they knock on our doors, we shouldn't flee in terror. We should say, let's talk. If you see them standing on the street corner, we shouldn't go to the other side of the street. We should go to them. And we should encourage them in the truth because they're going to face the wrath of God. They are lost. 
Now, what are some examples of the alterations that they have made? In John chapter 1, the scriptures teach, it's, it is evidenced in all of the manuscript evidence. All of the manuscripts, the copies of the New Testament, which we have in the Gospel of John. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But they add to it. They add the word a God. Because they do not believe that Jesus is in essence equal with the Father. And so they add to it. And they add to it through a grammatical a grammatical um, implementation in which they are inconsistent even in their own grammar and in their own translation. Look over at John 1 for just a moment. So I'm going to try and arm you with some truth that they come up to you and you know, you're talking about this and they say, well, no, actually, John 1.1 should read that in the beginning was a God. Okay? Now we know this is speaking about Jesus because John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us and then it goes on to talk about Jesus, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So here's what they do. It says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here's what they say. In the original Greek, when it says the Word was with God, that there's no definite article in the original Greek before the word God here. Therefore, it should be lowercase. It shouldn't be the God, definite article. It's lowercase, and so... We're going to translate it a God. Now, first of all, in Greek grammar, it doesn't have to have the definite article to be referring to God. And so context makes a difference in the determination there. Secondly, they are not consistent. Okay, if they're going to say that because it doesn't have the definite article, it should read a God, not the God then every other place where there is no definite article, they should translate it the same way, right? If they're going to say this is a hard and fast grammar rule, you've got to translate it this way, then they need to be consistent. But look down for just a minute to verse 6. There was a man sent from, and what what does your scripture say? There was a man sent from God. Does it say sent from a God? No. No. Guess what? The definite article is not there in the Greek. But who is the God who sent John? The God. You see, they're inconsistent. What what is shown by this? And it's borne out, and I won't go into other examples, but it's borne out throughout the word of God because they consistently and systematically try and go against all of the manuscript evidence and all of that which has been understood and interpreted throughout the ages, they are those who subtract from and add to the word of God because they don't like who Jesus really is. And the reason they don't like who Jesus is is because they rationalize. 
Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. There are all kinds of people out there in cults and in absolute heresy because they are attacking the very nature of who God is himself. You realize how serious it is when we actually attack and misbelieve who God actually is. That's a lot different than disputing about what one word of a text says here or, you know, we had the discussion this morning, you know, do we think that Adam and Eve had eaten of the tree of life and then they were barred from that so they couldn't continue to eat of it and that's why they would die or had they not touched it? You know, we can we can discuss and debate that because the text doesn't exactly say so we're trying to reason to write conclusions, but we don't hold that dogmatically one way or the other. But when it comes down to the very person of God, who God is as communicated in the word, now we are on holy ground. And so when people like the Jehovah Witnesses systematically attack the deity of Christ and do it because they're rationalizing, and how are they rationalizing? They're rationalizing by saying, Ultimately, they're saying, I don't like the doctrine of the Trinity. I don't I don't think it fits. It doesn't make sense to me that God could be three and one. And all kinds of cults have arisen. Because rather than take what the scriptures teach. People will say, God can't be like that because nothing else is like that. Well, nothing else is God. You know, we say God can't be like that because there's nothing else in this universe like that. We can't, you know, I had, I had a guy, I had a guy, he was a oneness Pentecostal, so he did not believe in the Trinity. He believed that God just appeared in three different forms in history, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he just appeared in different forms, kind of like he's got his father face on today and then he comes as Jesus and he puts his Jesus mask on and he comes as Jesus and then Jesus leaves and he puts his Holy Spirit mask on. Okay? And he's teaching at the nursing home before me. I hear him teaching these elderly folks this heresy. And I ask him afterwards because I didn't hear all of his message. You know, just so I understand you, are you teaching that there is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that these are the three in one that these are all equally God, but yet there is one God, which is what the Bible teaches. And he, he started arguing with me, and what he was saying, he was saying things like, well, you can't be three in one. And I'm just like, well, I'm not God. <laughs> you know, there's no one like God. We just accept what the scriptures teach. Now, the Bible is not saying, it's not illogical, it's not irrational, The Bible is not saying that God is three, but he is not three. God is one, but he is not one. No. It's saying that he is three in one. He is, there is one God who who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are three individual persons in the Godhead, but yet they are one God and they are equal in their essence in glory and in power and in wisdom and in attributes. And we just need to bow down and worship. 
We just need to bow down and worship. So the Jehovah Witnesses, in many places in their Bible, because they don't love Christ and follow Christ, have altered it. The Mormons have added to. Joseph Smith added an entire book, the Book of Mormon. Again, one man rises up late in history and he says, I've got it all figured out. Everybody else is wrong. Follow me. And oh, by the way, I can have many women. (laughs) The guy was a charlatan, a fraud, a false prophet. And he altered the word of God and he is burning in hell if he did not repent. Thus saith the word of God. He has added to the word. And he took the King James version of the Bible and he made his own translation out of that to fit with his false prophets. You, you think about this, folks. Here's one of the glorious things about the scriptures. The scriptures, were they written by one man who rose up and said, I've got it all figured out. Everybody else is wrong. The scriptures are written by multiple authors. The scriptures are written over thousands of years. The scriptures are contained in 66 books. And those books beautifully and perfectly fit with one another. We do not follow the teaching of one man who has risen up in history and says, everybody else has it wrong. Come follow me. Give me your absolute allegiance. Think about Islam. What happened? One man rose up, Muhammad, and he says, everybody else is wrong. I have the word of God, the Quran. One man. Something that you find out about various cults is that you will have a prominent leader rise up And he will say, I have the word of God. Others are wrong. Follow me. Follow me. I don't know about you. But I'm not going to place my faith in one man. Who rises up and says all these things. I'm going to follow the word of God. Which in the earliest testimonies testifies of the one man who would rise up, Jesus Christ, and then gives me four books that specifically talk about his life, and then give me multiple other books which expound on his teachings and his life. And this one man says, I am. And the people who heard him said, This man does not speak like the scribes and the Pharisees because he speaks with authority. I'm going to follow that man, Jesus Christ. And he said, the scriptures are those which testify of me, of me. Jehovah Witnesses do this. The Mormons do this. Thomas Jefferson did this. Has anybody ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Some people like to... uh, 
try and paint Thomas Jefferson as, as a Christian because he was influential in founding our nation. Thomas Jefferson went through and ripped out the majority of the scriptures. He ripped out portions of the scriptures that dealt with the supernatural. He did not approve of those things. He created his own Bible. He took away from the word of God. He took away from the word of God. Now, this text in Revelation is not condemning commentaries on the scripture. Okay? Very thankfully, because I'm commenting on the scripture right now, even though it's not written, right? It's verbal. But it does not prohibit that. As a matter of fact, Brother Terry read from the word today for us. It says, preach the word. And if we're going to do more than just stand up and read it and sit down, then we're commenting on it, just like in the Old Covenant, the priest would comment upon the reading of the law. Okay? So this is appropriate. What about, what about paraphrases of the Bible? Paraphrases. Now you realize if you go to a Christian bookstore, you go on Amazon or whatever else, and you know, you're looking for one of these and it says Holy Bible, you realize that it might be a more literal translation of the Bible or it may say Holy Bible on it, but actually be a paraphrase. Okay, do you know what a paraphrase is? Paraphrase is if we take a statement and then we put it into other words which are not one-to-one expressly stating that statement, but we're putting it into different words to try and explain a statement. Okay? So, you know, if, uh, if, I, if I took something like, you know, Jesus said, we saw from John chapter 6, verse 44 today, no man can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I, I either don't know the exact quotation or say something like, I'm going to paraphrase that. You know, I'm going to paraphrase it. Jesus is saying that the Father has to draw people unto himself because in and of themselves, they are not able to come to him. See, that's a paraphrase. I'm not quoting it word for word. But I'm not doing an extended sermon commenting on it in multiple different ways. I'm encapsulating it into different words. Okay. Now, there are paraphrases out there, and if, if you choose a Bible, it's good to know what's a paraphrase and what's not a paraphrase. Any of you heard of the message? The message is a paraphrase. It's a very, very loose translation. I mean, when it, it's quoting the Psalms and it says the mountains are doing cartwheels, that's a loose, that is very loose. The concept of cartwheels is not in the original Hebrew, all right? It would say the mountains are dancing, and he says the mountains are doing cartwheels. Okay? So it's a, it's a paraphrase. Paraphrases, in my opinion, should be seen more as a commentary than an actual translation. And we actually do a disservice if we put Holy Bible on a paraphrase. There have been a lot of people who think, oh, well, this is a translation 
of the Bible. Some of the paraphrases are not even translated from the people don't even have the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts in front of them. They just take another English translation and they put it into their own words, like the Living Bible. You familiar with that? That was really popular when in the 60s, 70s. Taylor, uh, whatever his first name was, his uh, last name was Taylor, wrote that for his children. And then all of a sudden it's like hugely popular and churches are passing it out to all the teens. But it's not a translation of the Bible. It's one guy taking an English translation and then giving his opinion of it. So the best translations of scripture are going to be those where there is a translation committee of multiple scholars who know the original languages and have the original manuscripts in front of them and are seeking to accurately translate and represent the original manuscripts. Okay? But paraphrases are not in and of themselves a violation of this text in Revelation. And paraphrases and other commentaries can be helpful. We just need to make sure that they know their place on our bookshelf. Right? Okay. One other question then is we consider the application of this text. What about prophecy? Does prophecy violate this text in Revelation? Again, look look back to the text, Revelation 22. And it says, for I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now, again, note this specific text is specifically talking about the book of Revelation. But. There are other passages of scripture which show us that God takes equally seriously all of his inspired, written word. Let's look at a couple we've already looked at today, but it'll be helpful to have these burned into our memories. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And verse 1 and following. Deuteronomy 4, let's start with verse 1. Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe, that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Notice this. You shall not add to it or take from it. And God mentions consequences if that is done. Continue reading. Your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor. For the Lord your God has destroyed from among you all the men who followed Baal of Peor. But you held fast to the Lord your God are alive today, every one of you. 
Now in the book of Numbers, it recounts what happened there. There were people who engaged in idolatry and followed the way of Baal, false god. And God sent a plague amongst them and 22,000 of them died on the spot. And so what's the warning here? If you add to or take away from the commandments of God, then God may smite you with a plague. What do we see in the book of Revelation? If you add to or take away from the commandments of God, you're going to be plagued with the plagues of the book and, and you will not inherit everlasting life. Okay? Proverbs 35 and 6. Brother Rick read this for us a moment ago. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. So the word of God is what we look to. We do not add to his word. Now, what about those who claim to be prophets today? There is a key word which will distinguish those prophets who are going to cross over into this camp of facing God's judgment for adding to or taking away from his word. And that key word is the word authority. It's the word authority. If a prophet stands up and says, I have a revelation from God that is the authority for the people of God. Then that prophet is adding to the written word of God. Because the written word of God clearly testifies, as Brother Rick has, has led us through the scriptures, the written word of God is our authority. So if you have a prophet that rises up and says, I have an authoritative word of God for the church of God, and you have to obey this word because it's the word of God, that prophet has added to the written scriptures, and that prophet has violated the biblical teaching of the sufficiency of Scripture. Look over at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, as you're, as you're heading over there, the reason I say this word authority is so key is because within the Christian camp, there are those who believe that God still speaks today in ways like he spoke to prophets of old, but yet they say that which the prophet receives from God is not authoritative. 
It is not command of God. We find God's commands in the scriptures. So that which God reveals to the prophet today may be something helpful for the people of God, but it does not bind the consciences of the people of God. That's an entirely different distinction, an entirely different camp. Now, one may disagree or agree one way or the other with what they say or what uh, you believe is happening, but you realize when you take it to the level, the level of thus saith the Lord that you have upped the ante big time. If you're saying, I believe the Lord has told me this and this is helpful for the people of God, but no one is commanded to follow this. That is much different than saying thou shalt do this because God told me you're supposed to do it. <laughs> well, the Bible teaches the doctrine of sufficiency of Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you're already there, and I'm still turning there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Let's start with verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ Jesus. Do you, do you need some type of special revelation from God outside of the holy scriptures in order to be able to have faith in Jesus? Absolutely not. The scriptures are sufficient to teach us the gospel of Christ so that we can be saved. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word scripture there in Greek is the word graphe. Transliterated G-R-A-P-H-E. Like graph. The word graphe means the writings. This word rules out oral prophecies, spoken prophecies, spoken to someone and not written down in the authoritative scriptures. This is talking about the written word of God, the written word of God, the graphe, the writings. Now, what does it say about these writings? All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine to teach us for reproof to show us where we're wrong for correction to put us on the right path and for instruction in righteousness to continually teach us what we need to know. That the man of God may be complete, notice this, thoroughly equipped for a few good works, but you got to have a divine word from God if you're going to be able to actually do good works. Is that what it says? Equipped for every good work. So the doctrine of the t- teaching, the uh, doctrine in this was articulated so well during the Protestant Reformation. Brother Rick referenced Sola Scriptura this morning. It was articulated in opposition to the Roman Catholic institution. I won't call it a church because it is not a true church. The Roman Catholic institution, which said, we have oral traditions And those oral traditions are equal to the scriptures. 
in the Roman Catholic tradition, which says when the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the chair, he is the mouthpiece of God speaking the infallible word of God. And then you look at all the popes throughout history and how much they contradicted one another. And that's what Luther is. He he stood at the Diet of Worms and he's on trial there. And he talks about the popes and the councils who have oft contradicted themselves. And he says that he is bound by the word of God and by his conscience. And he says those famous words, here I stand, I can do no other. So help me, God. So, there is the sufficiency of Scripture. What does this teach us? We do not need to have any so-called revelation from God directly to us or to someone else in order to know what God wants us to do. We go to God's Word, and God's Word alone teaches us God's will for us. And you know what? This is an encouraging and a hopeful thing. You know why? For one reason, you can open it and read it, and you can come to a right understanding of it, and you don't have to wonder was that a demon speaking to me? Or was that God? Was that just my own heart, and my own desires urging me? Or was that God? You see, we can go to the word and we can apply the proper methods of interpretation and we can say, thus saith the Lord, this is what I must do. And, you know, the majority of the teachings, commandments in scripture are very, very clear. There are some that are a little more difficult to understand and we sort through. But basic Christian morality is straightforward, folks. Unless you're. Married in a biblical marriage to a member of the opposite sex, don't have sex with someone. It's clear, simple. Men are not to engage in sexual activity with men. Women are not to engage in sexual activity with women. You're not supposed to covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house or your neighbor's car. That means you shouldn't desire that which doesn't belong to you. You're not supposed to shoot someone because you don't like the color of their hair or they said something bad about you. I mean, basic biblical morality is simple. It's simple. Praise God for that. We need to go to the word and we need to be focused on the word and drawing the truth out of the word and trusting that God has given us his word, which is sufficient for us to know his will. Now, I want to point out something from Scripture here, which is uh, very helpful to understand if you're thinking about prophets. You know, because there are all kinds of prophets out there today. You know, there there are people who uh, you go, you know, on YouTube or you go online. There are people who say all kinds of things about God gave me this word, and this is going to happen in the future, or this is not going to happen in the future, or this is what you're supposed to do, or this is what you're not supposed to do. We, we have to know how to weigh through all this. We need to know how to process all of this. And here is one key, again, understanding. Are these people claiming to have an authoritative word from God? 
Are they saying, I have a prophecy, and because I've been given a prophecy from God, you have to do this, that, or the other? Even in the Bible, when people were given a prophecy, an actual prediction of the future, that prediction of the future in and of itself did not determine God's will for their actions. Think about this. Look over to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. So what if what if somebody comes to you and says, I have a prophecy that if you buy such and such house, it's going to lead to a grievous disappointment in your life. And so, therefore, I'm warning you, God's telling me to tell you, don't buy this house. Does that mean, oh, wow, praise God, I now know God's will. I'm not supposed to buy this house. Not at all. Even if they're accurate, that grievous disappointment will come. That still does not determine whether or not you ought to buy that house. Notice this scenario in the Apostle Paul's life. The Apostle Paul was traveling to Jerusalem according to the will of God. In Acts chapter 21, and let's start with verse 11. It speaks about, I'm going to jump back to verse 9 for a moment. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him unto the hands of the Gentiles. So he takes Paul's belt, he binds himself and says, The Holy Spirit says that if Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound. Oh, wow. Prophecy of the Holy Spirit. God's will. Don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. How do the people respond? Now, when we heard these things, even Luke, who's writing this, saying when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we cease saying, the will of the Lord be done. You see, and was that an accurate prophecy of the Holy Spirit? Was Paul bound just like was prophesied? Yes, he was. But did that prophecy determine God's will for Paul? Absolutely not. Not in the sense of God's will of of decree or command for Paul. And so, even if it's the case that somebody is given an accurate prophecy of the future, that does not determine the will of God. This determines God's will for you. And this alone And again, that is such a blessing because now we don't have to ask ourselves, is this just is this just my sinful desire or is the Holy Spirit urging me to do something? And I'm just going to throw this out there, too. I'm just going to throw this out there. 
where do we get the idea that the Holy Spirit, as he gave prophecies unto men, ever worked through just urging them? And it was when it says that the Holy Spirit spoke to them, it was not an audible voice that they could actually hear. It says that he spoke to them. It doesn't talk about, oh, well, how do you know it was the Holy Spirit who spoke to you? Well, I just had this feeling. I just had this thought in my mind. I just had this urging or impression. The Bible doesn't speak like that. It speaks in the terms of when God spoke to Abraham, guess what? Abraham heard God speak in an audible voice. We have no reason to think otherwise. We have no reason to think otherwise. And so... I think that it's very important for us to realize the significance of the actual written word of God, the actual written word of God. Uh, I want to I note this as well as we finish up this application. Again, the word authority is so key. Somebody says, I have an authoritative word of God. Here's here's what happens in practice. And you know what? This is is just common sense. Okay, reason with me here. If somebody says, God spoke to me and told me such and such, that will for them become authoritative unless they treat it like I just mentioned in regards to the Apostle Paul. But if somebody ever says, God spoke to me and told me I must do such and such. That will automatically become equal with the written word of God for that person, as long as they believe that was God telling them that. You following what I'm saying? You follow what I what I'm saying? If somebody says, God told me that I must do such and such. Unless. They are willing to question that and believe that that was not God telling them that then that will hold equal authority with the written word in their life. It must think about this for a moment. Let's just use an illustration. What if there's a a memo that goes out from a supervisor to an entire department at work? And people have the written memo and they're reading the written memo. Maybe they're trying to understand exactly what the written memo says. And somebody goes to the supervisor and says, what does this mean? If the supervisor tells them, well, this is what I mean for you to do. What are they going to hold to as a higher authority? What the supervisor told them directly or the written memo? They're going to hold to what the supervisor said, right? And so if somebody says, I have an authoritative word from God. Then they're going to take that to the level of scripture. And so when the Roman Catholic Church, and I said church, I didn't mean to say that. When the Roman Catholic system elevates oral tradition. That oral tradition is ultimately going to be used to interpret the written word of God. And it is going to become necessarily authoritative for them, even above and beyond the word of God for them, because they use it to interpret the word of God. Okay. Here's here's another point, just as we're as we're working through some things. Okay. 
if if somebody says the Holy Spirit has given me an interpretation of the scriptures. Now, the Holy Spirit does help us understand the scriptures. But if somebody says the Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me how to understand this passage. Then guess then guess what? They're not going to be open to reconsider that passage unless they're open to consider whether the Holy Spirit really directed them in that way. And if if there's a conversation and two people are trying to understand the scriptures together and one person says the Holy Spirit told me this is what it means. That's like a bottom line. There's there's nowhere to go from there unless the other person is willing to question whether it was the Holy Spirit telling them that then it's end of discussion. You can't even discuss any further because who am I? Who are you? Who is anyone to question the Holy Spirit, right? Well, what if you have two people who both say the Holy Spirit told me this is the proper interpretation, but they disagree with one another? Somebody's wrong. And the only way to know whether you're right or wrong is to go to the Word and to dig into the Word and to interpret the Word properly. That's the only way to know if this is actually the Holy Spirit helping you understand the word or if it's just you wanting to understand it. You see, the word has to guide our interpretation or even our impressions of whether the Holy Spirit is helping us with the word. You see what I'm saying? These things are so practical. They're very important for us. I am am somewhat discouraged because the majority of those that I would listen to who would claim to be prophets are terrible exegetes of the scripture. They handle the scripture so poorly. The majority of those who say they are prophets, like your Benny Hens and your John Haggies and those type, they misuse the word of God very, very frequently. They do not handle the word of God well at all. They'll give passages of scripture and support for something that the Lord supposedly told them. And that passage has nothing to do with anything that they've said the Lord told them. And what they do oftentimes is they get people who are wanting to hear something new. And they, they, they get many followers of people who are wanting to hear something new. People who are not content to hear the word of God but who want to always hear something new, something more specific to them than the written word. And so it can be very dangerous to follow many of the so-called prophets today. In Jeremiah chapter 6, the Lord instructed the people to follow in the old paths. He said to follow in the old paths. Why? Because... People are always looking for something new, something sensational. But God has given us the faith once for all revealed to the saints in Christ Jesus. And this is contained in his word. It's contained in his word. Finally. If anyone claims to have a word of God, I would just simply say, put them to the biblical test. And here's the biblical test, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Deuteronomy chapter 15. 
I'm sorry, it's, I believe it's 18. I wrote 15, but 15 would be the verse that I want to start in. Deuteronomy 18, 15. God gave a test, and it's a very simple test. It says, if anyone ever claims to have a word from God, and the thing that he claimed doesn't happen, then that man is a false prophet. Under the old covenant, he was to be executed because he presumed to speak as the mouthpiece of God. Serious matter. Serious matter. Tie that in with the book of Revelation and the plagues coming upon someone. See how this all connects? Okay. Revelation eighteen fifteen. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is a prophecy of Christ who would come. What does it say in Hebrews chapter 1? God has spoken in various times in the past through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son, Jesus Christ. He is our great prophet. According to all you desired of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like me from you or from among their brethren. will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. This is speaking about Jesus as testified to in the book of Acts. But the prophet, notice this, who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. See how serious God takes this. Boy, anybody who stands up and says, I have a word from the Lord and doesn't quote scripture had better take very seriously what they are saying. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So here's the, here's the thing, folks. You want to know the test for whether somebody's a prophet of God? If they stand up and say, the Lord has said this is going to happen. If they are ever wrong, even in the slightest, even once, they are a false prophet. It's not just that they just made a little bitty mistake. They are a false prophet. And it says, you shall not. Fear that person. Implication, they have lost all credibility. You should never listen to them again. If they ever again say, I have a word from God. That's the biblical test. Now, there there are some in circles today, and even some men I respect greatly, and they would say, well, there are fallible prophets today. But I simply ask this, where did God reverse this test? Now, we're not a we're not Israel under a theocracy with holy war and purging from the land. And so I don't believe we should execute false prophets today. 
But where does God reverse this test and say, now we have fallible prophets who can predict things that are going to happen in the name of God and they can make a mistake, but yet they're still a prophet of God. We have no such teaching in the scriptures. Here's the test. Here's the test. I am myself. I'm very content to look to the word of God. If there's a wise person out there and they say, I think that all the signs indicate that in our economy, this is the direction we're heading. Then I'm very willing to listen to that person if they're wise and if they prove to be accurate. But it takes it to a whole nother level if somebody says, thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. And I am much more content to look to the scriptures and say, well, we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. If what you said happens, then that was part of God's sovereign will. Because everything that happens is part of God's sovereign will. (laughs) But if you're wrong, even in the smallest detail, you have presumed upon God and you're on dangerous ground. I don't necessarily think that that person is going to absolutely be damned unless they have added to the written word or subtracted from the written word, but I will say that they are on dangerous ground to presume to speak in the name of the Lord when the Lord has not spoken. Okay? Well, an important subject with many practical implications, as you can understand. And I pray the Lord will help us through this all to honor the Lord Jesus Christ of whom the New Testament speaks and to honor the word of God written for us and to place it on the level of authority that it deserves and never to elevate anything to that authority in our lives. Father, thank you for the time we've had here. Pray that you will bless our meal together, that you will bless the time of fellowship that we have. And may you be honored as we seek your word and the understanding of your word. We pray in Jesus name. Amen.